Liz Taylor is famous. In a sense, so am I. But I'd very much different quantity. No magazine's gonna run up to cover me if I go to a premiere. But it's still a fame. It's a small fame. But you absorb it, you take it. And you like it. You like the adulation, the applause, the people cheering you on, the winning. It's like a, a physical high. It's an addictive high, like all highs in the long run turn out to be. But it's a high that won't hurt you. If everybody went to balls and did less drugs, it'd be a fun world, wouldn't it? And the children now, most of them, 75% of the, of the children who the ball wouldn't know what a ball was if it knocked them in the head. I've been to several balls, and they've actually had categories. Dynasty. You know, want you to look like Alexis or Crystal. When I grew up, you want to look like Marlena Dietrich, Betty Grable. Fortunately, I didn't know that I really wanted to look like Lena Horn. Nobody wanted to look like Lena Horn. Everybody wanted to look like Marilyn Monroe. For those little flaws like that, that's because that's a part of shade. That's the idea. Knock them out if you can. Get them anywhere. You hit them below the belt. Shade comes from reading. Reading came first. Reading is the real art form of insults. You get in a smart crack and everyone laughs and kikis because you found a flaw and exaggerated it, then you've got a good read going. They may call you a faggot or a drag queen. You find something to call them. But then when you are all of the same thing, then you have to go to the fine point. In other words, if I'm a black queen and you're a black queen, we can't call each other black queens because we're both black queens. That's not a read. That's just a fact. So then we talk about your ridiculous shape, your fat saggy face, your tacky clothes. Then reading became a developed form where it became shade. Shade is, I don't tell you you're ugly, but I don't have to tell you because you know you're ugly. And that's shade. I always had hopes of being a big star. And then I look, as you get older, you, you aim a little lower. And I, you say, well, yeah, you still might make an impression. Everybody wants to leave something behind them some impression, some mark upon the world. And then you think you left a mark on the world if you just get through it. And a few people remember your name. Dorian's friend told the police that Dorian had left behind some writing on very old paper. She said that it appeared that her friend, a celebrated drag queen now deceased, had been writing a story. She could only recall a few details about it. What really stood out for her were the words murder and revenge. It could have just been a story, a famed New York City drag queen trying her hand at fiction. Or it could have very well solved a mystery. The mystery of why the drag queen had a mummified body in a garment bag in her closet for what could have been 25 years. You're listening to Wicked Gay, a true crime podcast about gay people doing awful things.
Did you know that Wicked Gay has a Patreon? Yes. And I've got new Patreon subscribers. Two of them. There's Dave and there's Adam. Admittedly, I know them. Admittedly, I grew up with them. Admittedly, they're two of my favorite people in the world. I have two bio brothers and then a bunch of jerks who are my brothers from other mothers. There are two of them. Thanks, guys. And if you'd like bonus Wicked Gay episodes and content, go to patreon.com slash wickedgay and sign up. You won't regret it. And yay, the podcast episode officially starts here. Hello! Ugh, it's the doldrums months. January through March. And that Cadbury mini eggs in April. And suddenly it's pride. And you're drinking a super overpriced cocktail. And cheering on a savings and loan being performative in a parade. So I thought I'd go with a story I find kind of fun. Uh Uh-oh, okay, it's weird to say this. And I say this only because I have a dark sense of humor and a fairly fatalistic view on life. But I've always found this story fun, and I'm kind of happy she got away with it. And I know it says on the tin this podcast is about awful people, but in this episode, it's a little flipped. The murderer seems like she was a really good person. In actuality, it sounds like the victim might have been a bad guy here. There's also some very good reasons for why the murderer may have concealed her crime, even if it was self-defense, which it could have been. But before you curse me out, yeah, someone was killed. That's bad. But I should point out that even the dead guy's relative made it sound like he was no great loss. Okay, justification over. Let's stomp the runway, hunty. This is episode 47, Death by Drag Queen, Dorian Corey. My main source for this episode was an article in the May 1994 issue of New York Magazine by Jeannie Russell Kazendorf called The Drag Queen Had a Mummy in Her Closet. I also used Wikipedia and two websites, Black Art Story and A Gender Variance Who's Who. Now, about those clips in the beginning, some of you in the audience might find those familiar, especially the queer people. The person speaking in those audio clips at the beginning is Dorian Corey, and they're taken from the greatest documentary of all time, Paris is Burning. Directed by Jenny Livingston and released in 1990, it's about New York City's ballroom culture during the 80s, and all the trans people and drag queens and the black and Latin people who created it and made it their lives, and they formed competitive houses, which were like families, or as Dorian explained, gay street gangs. Ryan Murphy's show Pose is basically Paris's burning with higher production values and a lot of dramatic license. It's basically about the experiences of all those people and what it was like living and surviving and thriving on what was kind of the edge of society and living by your creativity and your inspirations and just kind of being yourself. Hell, they made their own society. Anyway, it's a classic for a reason. All you young queer people, go watch it right now. Know your history. And note that you'll suddenly understand the majority of jokes and references that you weren't getting on Drag Race. Hell, Paris is Burning is Drag Race's spiritual mother. There wouldn't be a Drag Race without Paris is Burning. At least not in its current form. Dorian Corey was one of the most prominent interviewees in Paris is Burning. And she's now basically a deity. She was a 50-something black trans drag queen when trans drag queens were even less accepted than they are today. And you might have noted the neo-Nazis campaigning outside the drag queen story hour. So you recognize that trans people aren't completely accepted today in certain parts of the country, which is bullshit. Before I get to Ms. Corey's crazy crime, I'd like to get into her backstory. Dorian was a trans woman who was assigned male at birth. She grew up on a farm in Buffalo, New York. 
That's where the other Mr. Harvey is from. It's very cold. It's sort of half Canadian, and the food is delicious. And it ain't salad, let me tell you. They like their pizza, and they love their wings. And I do too. Dorian, who would eventually become a mother of sorts to many trans women and drag performers at NYC, was a mother from a very young age. She once explained that his her own mother, divorced and remarried, gave her her new baby to look after at eight years old. The children of yesteryear were way more competent than the sheltered little moppets of today. Kids nowadays get driven to school. Maya's had to walk and then outrun pedo clowns in white vans trying to get me to take acid so they could rape me or steal my immortal soul or both. Dude, they were wild with the suburban legends back in the 80s, weren't they? Dorian first started doing drag in Buffalo and also worked at a department store designing the window displays. She moved to New York City in the 1950s to study art, and she ended up doing drag full-time, joining a cabaret drag act called the Pearl Box Review, which traveled up and down the East Coast. Dorian worked as a snake dancer in the show with an actual snake. No, thank you. It was during her time with the review that she began to transition, and unfortunately felt that she had to cut off all contact with her family. Probably not an easy choice for mother, right? I mean, it was like, be yourself and lose your family, or live a lie and keep them. A choice queer people shouldn't have to make, ever. Eventually, she started her own house. Uh, A house is kind of, as Dorian once described it, a gay street gang. It's um, a kind of a chosen family for everyone that protect each other. And they would compete in the balls, like, you know, like voguing and like dance and costumery and drag queening and all that stuff. And yeah, they started competing in voguing balls and snatching trophies. She was also the drag figure to another prominent figure in Paris's burning, Angie Extravaganza. Angie would go on to form her own house, the House of Extravaganza. And Dorian was beloved in the community, a mother to many known for being a consummate performer and costume designer, and she was known for her razor-sharp wit, her ability to cut you up the second you left the room, the shady lady. But on the other hand, one drag queen described her as, quote, an angel. Dorian also designed her own costumes. She ran and designed a clothing label called Cory Design. At one point, her act involved wearing a 30-by-40-foot feather cape. Once she shed the cape, two attendants raised it up on poles to produce a feathered tent that covered half the audience. Now that's a reveal. Oh, a a reveal. A reveal is when a drag queen mid-lip sync changes her outfit in some way, like produces some kind of gimmick or trick or changes it to look even cooler. Uh, That's what a reveal is. And and the audience goes, woo! Yeah. You you non-drag fans are learning a lot today, huh? Sometime in the 70s, Dorian's then-boyfriend absconded with all of the money she had won at pageants and balls, and she never saw him again, so she had to start all over. She would later get with a man named Leon, who was reportedly very good to her, although it sounds like they didn't live together or he moved out because, well, we'll get to it. She ended up becoming a mainstay at a joint called Sally's 2, where she hosted Dorian Corey's Drag Doll Review. The bar was across the street from the New York Times, and Dorian worked there right up until a couple weeks before her passing. Tragically, like many in her community, Dorian passed away from AIDS-related complications at Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center in Manhattan on August 29th, 1983, at the age of 56. And just a few weeks before that, she put on a final performance at Sally's, where she was presented with the Entertainer of the Year Award. And she performed while wearing a white gown encrusted with pearls and a matching white marabou coat. 
Her memorial service would later be held in the very same space. The world lost a real one, as the kids say. And then we arrive at what happened after Dorian's passing. Lois Taylor was a fellow drag queen and a good friend of Dorian's, who she was also in Paris's burning. Lois took care of Dorian the last three years of her life, and she would later tell a reporter that she'd gone to Dorian's apartment that day because, on her deathbed, Dorian had told her to go to her apartment, gather up all the beautiful costumery and design work, and sell it. So, one morning in October, Lois went to Dorian's fourth floor apartment on West 140th Street. With her were two customers, supposedly straight men, who were looking to buy some of Dorian's creations for the sumptuous fabric used. It's like when people strip copper wire, but gay. Dorian's apartment was reportedly covered in clutter. She wasn't the neatest drag queen. So they maneuvered their way to the apartment's legendary back room, where Dorian kept all of her costumes. And it was there that they noticed a large plaid hanging type of garment bag from the 60s. And Lois tried lifting it. It was heavy and clearly overstuffed. Probably thinking there were priceless garments galore in there, she told one of the customers to just cut it open. And when he did, a terrible smell emanated from out of the dusty bag, and there was something fairly large wrapped in a leather-like material. Lois later told the New York Magazine reporter that she didn't touch what was inside. Instead, she immediately called the police, because this was potential trouble, because what was in the bag was a body. A corpse, to be specific. Half mummified, half still decomposing. Ugh. The corpse was that of a man wearing ragged boxer shorts and one sleeve of a t-shirt. Fashion. The coroner later discovered the cause of death. Garment bag guy had been shot in the head. Now that's a story. And the NYC press began to take notice. At first, Ms. Corey wasn't mentioned. It was just mummy found in suitcase in Harlem apartment. And then it blew up when it made page six. Richard Johnson, who was the famed gossip columnist, he heard about a connection between the mummy in the bag and a fairly well-known six-foot-two drag queen. He ended up writing about the story but got some of the details a little skewed and just a bit transphobic, noting that some of Dorian Corey's, quote, cross-dressing friends were looking for Halloween costumes and came up on the body in a trunk wrapped in saran wrap and coated with baking soda. He also noted that he'd spoken to the cops about it and they reportedly told him that the body could have been there for seven months to 20 years. How precise. Okay, so I have a funny page six story. Um, so I was asked several, several years back to interview uh, for page6.com. They were giving page six its own website. Uh, back then was when the blogs were huge, like Perez Hilton and Delisted, for which I worked, by the way. And I was like so psyched to be interviewed, being asked to interview for this website in New York City. I'm like a suburban guy. So uh, I went to there to interview with this guy, this Australian guy, because Australians kind of own a lot of newspapers, or they did, you know, Murdoch. And um, I was incredibly nervous and like totally naive. And I'm like a dork. So so (laughs) I go to this office and this like Australian guy busts out of like a side door and is like, come on, we're going to lunch. And I'm like, okay. So, and he's walking ultra fast. And like, I've sweated this this interview. I've been sweating it. I like sweated my outfit. I sweated getting there. I drove four hours. Uh, it was pouring rain. It was like, I was very nervous and I'm, I'm nervous anyways, but like super nervous. So of course, when I'm nervous, I say 
really dumb things. Anyway, so we're at this like New York City restaurant, which was like pretty nice. And we're sitting there and he orders like this big plate of pasta and I can barely eat. So like I just get like a, I think a glass of wine and like maybe some bread or some shit. And also drinking during an interview is probably stupid. Okay. So he's asking me all these questions, right? And I know I'm not getting this. I just know it. He took one look at me. was like, this is not someone who's going to be involved in New York City nightlife and gossip and like, you know, bust into limos to like talk to people. This wasn't me. Um, I just write snarky things and hide behind a computer. Okay. So we're in the restaurant and um, he's like, so would you be willing to like, you'll be out to like 3am, 4am some nights in the clubs. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can totally see myself doing that. Yeah, totally. And um, he just <laughs> he's like, he's shoveling pasta in his mouth and he's saying this in an Australian accent, which I can't copy. Good eye, mate. Yeah, kind of. And, and then like, then I started like, then he got silent and I had to fill the silence with like stupid things. <laughs> So I said something, I said at one point, fame is the new currency. Because <laughs> I, I, I think I read it somewhere. Seriously, my favorite meal is Kraft macaroni and cheese and hot dogs. I'm from like a very dumb white street south of Boston. Okay, anyway. And then I said the worst thing I've ever said in my entire life. Worst things in like, you know, I'm not your father or, or he's dead or whatever. Uh, I said, <laughs> I said, hmm, Boston is my wife, but New York City is my mistress. <laughs> oh, you should have seen. You, you should have seen the look this man gave me. He was like, this corny motherfucker. <laughs> so, well, say that in an Australian accent. Anyway, I... <laughs> I didn't get the job. I didn't get the gig. But um, when page6.com did go live, it was up for about a month. And then it was it was done. It was over. It, d- it did nothing. So if I had taken the job and moved to New York City, I would have been fucked. Right? But um, yeah. Whenever you don't know what to say and you're talking about two cities, you say one city is your wife, but the other, <laughs> but the other city is your mistress. Plus, I'm gay. So like my master? I don't know. Whatever. Moving right along. The cops told Page Six that nothing was found in the apartment to explain the carry-on corpse that Dorian Corey left behind, but they did discover the deceased's name was Robert Wells. Page Six's Johnson also claimed that her friends found and took with them a note that said, the poor man broke into my home and was trying to rob me. Was that the whole story? Not quite. The next day, the New York Daily News got into Robert Wells. They reported that he had multiple arrests for rape, burglary, and assault, and reportedly hadn't been seen since 1968. And that was the story until 1994, and New York Magazine got in-depth with it. For instance, the cops thought Wells had been shot with a 25 caliber whatever, and Bobby Wells' government name was originally Bobby Worley. He was born in December of 1938, had a brother named Fred Worley in Washington Heights, and he hadn't been arrested for multiple crimes, but he had done three years in prison for assaulting and raping a woman in 1963. He had gotten out of Sing Sing in 66 and gone to visit his brother Fred, and that was the last time he'd been seen. 
So the case's fingerprint expert, this detective, got really in-depth with it. He revealed that the body had been wrapped in this cheap leather-like material called naugahyde that was popular back then. You'd, you'd use like it to make like cheap jackets. I mean, this is a drag queen. It could have been wrapped in feather boas. It was also wrapped in plastic wrap under the naugahyde. And uh, trigger warning for gross, but the there was supposedly a lot of liquid in the bag. And the fingerprint expert used this quote, the body was floating, quote, in its own soup. Ugh. Another trigger warning. The detective also said that the corpse's skin fell apart when just touching it. My family knows, by the way, to cremate me, cremate me. Just set me on fire. I don't want to be a body. I know I'm no longer using it, but I'd really like my shell to have some sort of dignity afforded to it, please. Another interesting detail that sort of shed light on when this all happened, the actual time period, was the flip tops. When they unwrapped the body, several flip-top keys from cans of beer fell out, and these would have been from old-school beer cans. This let the cops know the body had been there since at least the 70s, meaning Bobby Worley had died at least 15, maybe 25 years earlier. Plus, Naugahyde was popular in the disco era. I'm sure someone had a leisure suit with very wide lapels made out of it. Dorian's drag queen friends had theories. They were also freaked out that they had, she had fitted them for costumes mere feet away from a dead guy. They didn't recognize the name Bobby Wells or Worley, but one queen surmised that Dorian and the deceased might have dated, or Dorian could have been into him romantically, and it went pear-shaped with Bobby abusing her. Paris's Burning's director, Jenny Livingston, spent many, many hours interviewing Dorian, probably sensing she was the star of the whole thing, and she had a theory about the missing murder weapon. Quote, I shot in both her old and new apartments. Living where Dorian lived, it's very likely that she had a gun for protection. When we were shooting, a gun battle erupted on the street. And Dorian was like, gunfight at the OK Corral. I can't do impressions for anything, but I love when she said, I want to be Ms. Lena Horn. God, my impressions are bad. Um, Jenny went on to say that, um, that she had absolutely no idea why she would have done it. Uh, her main feeling is one of bafflement. She added that she couldn't picture Dorian hiding a body away. So, intense speculation, maybe Dorian didn't murder him in cold blood, or it was a case of self-defense. Maybe she was hiding Bobby Worley, uh, his corpse, for somebody else. A drag queen named Topaz, that's seductive, claimed that her cousin had shot her lover, and Topaz brought the gun to Dorian, a silver twenty-two caliber. The cousin needed to get rid of it, and Dorian bought it. Meanwhile, Bobby Worley's brother Fred was in his early 60s in the early 90s, and he lived in and was superintendent of an apartment building in Washington Heights. In an interview with New York Magazine, he revealed that he and Bobby were from a family of seven children, and Bobby was the baby of the family. Fred and his wife and child came from the South to NYC in 56, and Bobby came shortly after. Bobby was released from Sing Sing in August of 66 and came to live with Fred and his family in either 67 or 68. And by that time, he was calling himself Bobby Wells and had a son. Bobby was also abusing alcohol and drinking a bottle of vodka a day. That is a lot of vodka. After about three months of living with Fred and his family, Bobby vanished. Fred said he had begun an affair with the woman who lived, lived next door to him and ended up beating up one of her children, a seven-year-old yuck. The woman threatened to call the cops. Threatened? Threatened? 
and just threatened, and Bobby took off, and it was the last Fred saw of him. And then 25 years later, Fred's told that his brother had been murdered. Fred and the family let the cops bury Bobby in Potter's Field on Hart Island. It's where NYC buries the unclaimed people, so I'm imagining a really sad place. But the big news, well, some of the big news, Bobby dated transvestites and trans women. Fred felt that Bobby and Dorian had been a couple. One drunken night, Bobby was out and he called what he thought was a love interest, but in fact, he was too drunk to realize he'd called Fred's house where he was staying. He began going on about the relationship he was in, and Fred claimed Bobby's partner who he was speaking to, who he thought he was speaking to, was named Dorian. Bobby was drunkenly trying to make up with Dorian after a fight they apparently had. This seems too neat for me, but I'm, you know, I'm shrugging, but okay. When asked if Bobby could have gotten abusive with his alleged love interest Dorian, his brother said that he had no first-hand knowledge, but he could definitely see it. After all, this is a man who beat up a seven-year-old. Fred imagined that Bobby might have gone too far with Dorian with the violence, and found out that Dorian wasn't the one, and welcome to her garment bag. So, New York Magazine spoke with Pepper LaBeja, who besides having the most amazing name, was a prominent figure in Paris's burning as well in the ballroom scene. She, if you've seen the movie, she was the one with the silvery clothes and the teeth and tells the story about how her mom uh, burnt up all her girl clothes when she found out that Pepper was trans. So Pepper claimed that she'd lived in an apartment with Dorian in the 70s. And this kind of confirmed what Jenny Livingston said about how Dorian had two apartments in the time she'd known her. Um, and Pepper said she'd never smelt a body in the one she lived in with Dorian. So Pepper LaBeja puts the blame or put the blame on Dorian's other friend Lois, the woman who had found the body. She thought maybe Dorian was hiding the body for Lois. So Lois must have stolen Pepper LaBeja's favorite makeup palette or something because that's really cold of her to blame her for that. So Lois was contacted again by the magazine and said that Dorian was a mother figure to her and she stuck by her when she got sick and was dying. When she was asked if Dorian um, when she asked Dorian if Lois should contact her family, Dorian said, hell no. And Lois had found some letters from Dorian's mother when they were still corresponding when Dorian came to New York in the 50s. And it turns out her mom knew she was transitioning, but never told the rest of Dorian's family. Lois also found a phone number and ended up reaching Dorian's sister, who said that her family had been looking for Dorian for 30 years. Isn't that sad that Dorian, like whatever the circumstances you know, would think that she couldn't be in contact with her family. Uh, well, unless they were unaccepting and evil, then, you know, who could blame her? And Lois denied knowing a Bobby, but said Dorian could have had a lover. She denied hiding a, Dorian hiding a body for her. And she also talked about a story she found in Dorian's apartment, the one that I mentioned in the beginning of the episode, uh, written out on old yellow paper an unfinished story about a drag queen whose boyfriend is trying to force her to fully transition gender, and the drag queen doesn't want to. And like I said earlier, the words murder and revenge were prominent in this story. And that was Lois's theory. Maybe um, she'd been with, uh, you know, Dorian had been with Bobby, and Bobby wanted to ha her to have surgery, and Dorian didn't want to, and a fight broke out, and Bobby was either killed in self-defense 
by accident or full-on murdered. As snarky Lois noted, only Dorian and Bobby knew what happened, and it would take a seance to find the real answer. Dorian's story has now become infamous gay lore, and it's been retold. You know that show Pose I mentioned earlier about queer and trans chosen families forming houses and competing in balls? It's one of Ryan Murphy's better shows. And it ended when it should have, and it's an incredible look at the life and times of these people against the backdrop of homophobia and the AIDS crisis, and Madonna ripping them off for a hit song. Highly recommended. Anyway, one of the main characters is a nine-foot, I'm exaggerating, nine-foot tall drag queen, but she looks it, honestly. A black trans woman called Electra. She's basically the Alexis Carrington of Pose, the glamorous bitch with the best of the evil one-liners. Anyway, before Electra hits it big in the show, she works as a dominatrix. In the third episode of season two, called Butterfly Cocoon, one of Electra's clients dies mid-bondage session. Now, if you think about it, even if Dorian had nothing to do with um, Bobby's death, or it was an accident or whatever, if she had reported it to the cops, she would have been screwed. She was a black trans transsexual uh, uh, who worked as a drag queen. Uh, the cops would not have been on her side. They would have assumed that she offed him, and she would have been fucked. Um, in the in the the Pose episode about this story. There's a character um, who is a prostitute, and she tells a story about how she was with a white client one night who beats the shit out of her. And they showed this as a reenactment of it. And um, when the cops show up, uh, he he t- says that the, the, the prostitute, this black trans woman, had robbed him. And the cops arrested her and charged her because she's a trans woman of color hooking up uh, for money, and he's the white, straight in quotes, guy. So they were, the police were enemies of the community at that time. Um, sometimes they are still. Anyway, so Electra and her friends end up hiding the guy's body in a trunk in her closet. And she escapes legal action. Paris's burning served as some of the primary source material of her pose. And the story was clearly based on Dorian Corey's story. So we'll never know what happened, but what we do know is that Dorian Corey was a force of nature and vastly entertaining. Not that that gives murder a pass, it doesn't. Oh, and go watch Paris' Burning and Pose, both highly recommended. Thank you for listening this evening. Please check out WickedGay's Patreon for bonus content and episodes, and check us out on social media under WickedGayPod on most of those platforms. And if you can, like, subscribe or like or leave a review or click a star or whatever. Um, theme song is by Gino and the Goons, cover art by Paul Chapman, and audio engineering by the other Mr. Harvey. And, you know, please be kind to yourself, even if you think you don't deserve it. And God, I hope Michelle Obama does run for president, because Biden, Jesus. Good night. You've been listening to Wicked Gay, a true crime podcast about gay people doing awful things. (laughs) 